Looking to stand out from the pack at your first job? When you earn a master's in management from Georgetown, you'll gain the skills employers value most, elevating your career prospects for years to come. Get started at choosegeorgetown.com slash MIM. You've come to the right place for what is worth knowing when it comes to autonomous vehicles, self-driving, driverless, and more. It's the Smart Driving Cars podcast. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with the Faculty Chair of Autonomous Vehicle Engineering at Princeton University, Alan Kornhauser. Hi again, Alan. Hi, Fred. Some very significant news this week, and we have a couple of really knowledgeable guests to help us out with the discussion from the University of South Carolina, legal expert Bryant Walker-Smith, and from Princeton University, Ed Felton, a computer scientist who served as a technology advisor in the Obama administration. Bryant and Ed, we're happy to have you join us. Pleasure to be here. Great to be here. You're both quoted in this week's ARS Technica piece by Timothy Lee titled, Fully Driverless Waymo Taxis Are Due Out This Year, Alarming Critics. Alan, uh, the lead here says Waymo is about to launch a commercial driverless taxi service on public streets in Arizona, and it says they are doing it with, quote, remarkably little oversight from officials in either Phoenix or Washington. Um, that's uh, probably true. Um, certainly in Washington, um, um, I don't know that they have anybody really looking at it, and in Phoenix uh, and Arizona, I'm sure they have some people looking at it, but maybe the most oversight is coming from Wall Street, and uh, and Wall Street is looking at this, and if in fact uh, uh, some of the past history with respect to how Wall Street has treated uh, those who have gone out there and not done so well with this, um, they provide an enormous amount of oversight on this, especially with respect to safety. I think that uh, with respect to the way Wall Street is looking at this, if it is not safe, it will not happen. And the valuations that uh, Wall Street has has put on some of these entities, I think it's become clear to everybody who's doing this, uh, safety is a absolute necessary condition. And, um, and if you uh, are not safe, you'll lose the ranch. And so I think with respect to the oversight that might be brought with respect to safety uh, by Arizona or by Washington, I think uh, Wall Street holds a much, much bigger um, uh, anvil over the head of these uh, of these entities uh, to make sure that the safety piece is absolutely uh, guaranteed and that once that safety piece is there, then let's go out and create the mobility. We're going to get into that uh, debate, I think, in, in a little bit. The article states under both Presidents Obama and Trump, the government has taken a hands-off approach to, to driverless car regulation, um, as Alan just said, leaving it to Wall Street. Ed, you were among the advisors to President Obama. Take us through the thinking process here. Sure. Uh, in terms of government regulation of vehicles, the North Star is safety. And I think both in, under both administrations, uh, officials have recognized that in the long run, the safest uh, outcome is one in which self-driving car technology is 
uh, widely deployed and has uh, has and there's enough experience with it that it has become safer than um, than human driving, and that is the goal. The question is how to get to that point. How can we get from uh, today where there's relatively less experience with these technologies to a future where there's a lot of experience and they are safer and we know they're safer. Um, and so the goal is to, uh, is deployment in the long run. Um, so then the question is, how do you get there? And you know, one of the most important considerations is how difficult it is to evaluate and predict the safety of these technologies. There's so much involved in doing it and industry is in a better position to assure safety just in terms of the resources they have, the knowledge they have about the technology, the amount of access that a company making a technology has to it in order to test it or evaluate it or put it into a simulation environment or all of the things you need to do for safety. And so the best way, if the best road if we can stay on it is one where industry is really doing their homework to make sure that vehicles are safe and that the testing that happens is responsible and government is watching carefully um, and ready to step in if things go off the rails. Uh, and that's kind of the approach that both the Obama and Trump administrations have taken, sort of uh, allowing companies to go forward cautiously. Um, and uh, the attitude, at least in the Obama administration, um, and I think the traditional attitude in regulation in these areas is that um, although liability an important role in uh, disciplining the car makers to make sure that they uh, take care of safety, that there is also a regulatory role for the government and the ability of government, for example, to recall vehicles that turn out to be dangerous is also an important part of the picture. So it's all about standing back, making sure the industry is doing what, what they need to do, and if they do, then government not taking the hand. Well, there are some pretty harsh critics being quoted in this article, but the government approach seems to be that the potential liabilities, as you're saying, are enough of an incentive for Waymo and others to make sure this technology is being used as safely as possible. Bryant, let's let's turn to you for some perspective, uh, maybe on the legal front. Sure. So I, I think there's a tendency sometimes to think that government acts only through rules that it enacts in advance, that it's the automated driving laws that ca catch people's attention um, or the rules that an agency may or may not have or may issue. And I want to pick up on really what Ed said and, and reinforce the idea that that government regulation is much broader. Um, it's all kinds of, of hard actions and all kinds of soft actions, including um, continuing to be in a dialogue with companies, um, watching what they're doing, um, initiating investigations as appropriate, being able to order recalls, um, being able to make life difficult for companies that seem to be acting less responsibly than those that do. Um, all of those are, are really important tools in in a government's regulatory toolbox. Now, that's not to say that they're all being used or being used in the most effective way, but that these are all necessary parts of our conversation about regulation. Um, I, I think that that goes hand in hand with forms of regulation that exist outside of government. Um, Alan, you mentioned Wall Street. I, I think I'm a little less optimistic about um, the effect that that has long term on, on incentives um, or on safety, uh, but I, that 
coexists with uh, rules of liability, um, with the actions of other agencies. We saw the Securities and Exchange Commission you know, take some relevant actions recently that, that suggest that that agency has a role, that the Federal Trade Commission could have a role in these actions, that states could have an action, and that certainly um, media has, an, has a role in, in providing a public check on, on the activities of these companies. Ultimately, for me, the, the question is one of, of trust. And so when there are deficiencies in trust of the technologies or trust of the developers or even trust of the regulators that are supposed to be overseeing um, these developers or these technologies, um, that points to a, a really important area to, to be addressed. You know, uh, somebody's got to play devil's advocate here, so I think I'm going to do that. Um, how does one respond to critics who argue that regulation is needed here, that much like there's regulation of medical devices or, or airplanes before they're entrusted with, with the lives of consumers? Why should this be different? Well, let me chime in just a little bit here. I, th- I think um, uh, Brian mentioned long-term. Long-term, uh, Wall Street is, is probably not the right place. Short term, I think it's very much the right place when these companies has have basically everything at risk, which makes them, uh, um, uh, I guess, behave, let's put it that way, properly and have the, the, the right focus to get it into the right direction. So that once this becomes a mature industry, uh, like the medical device industry or like the airplane industry, then of course, uh, then one knows what to, what to regulate. One, one knows what one didn't know before. And therefore, that makes uh, that allows for for the public sector to come in there and and do the appropriate rules of the road. <clears throat> We're at the very beginning of this thing, uh, and I keep saying we don't know what we don't know. And uh, we need to be very careful. And the only way that we're really going to find out how how tough Mother Nature is going to be on this one is to uh, do it with Mother Nature. Ed, let me let me have you chime in here. Uh, would you advocate that uh, companies, uh, Waymo and, and others, be allowed to essentially do what they want to do at this point, wherever? Well, I don't think that's the situation we are in, nor have we been. Right, car safety has been regulated for a long time, and uh, that's not going to change. Um, so, so the question is not whether we have regulation, um, but what form it takes. Um, I also want to go back to something Bryant said about the use of soft power by regulators. That is, you know, regulators have many ways to influence what happens in the world besides making rules and banning things. Um, some of it is statements by officials. Some of it is uh, a big part of it is conversation with the industry. Um, just to talk to people in industry and say, hey, explain to us what you're doing to make sure this is safe. Um, uh, convince us that we don't need to be more aggressive in some particular area because you're on top of it. Um, and those sorts of conversations, statements, speeches, as well as the discretionary actions that agencies take play a big role. Um, and so I think that you know, what we're seeing and what I think is the right policy is one that puts regulatory agencies in more of a kind of watchdog role 
as opposed to one that makes a lot of detailed rules. That, um, you know, fundamentally we do, the, the structure of car regulation has been that companies are responsible, that there are regulations, that companies are responsible for ensuring that they comply with them and government has the ability to step in if a company is, uh, crosses the line and puts something on the road that's truly dangerous. I think that's the situation we're going to continue to be in. Bryant, how much faith do you, do you think that we're putting in these companies that uh, they're going to be as transparent as, as we'd like them to be? Oh, uh, I think transparency is, is orthogonal to these issues. Um, I don't want to suggest that that safety and transparency are the same. In fact, in, in the domain of cybersecurity, there's at least a credible argument that, that um, they're, they're not the same. Um, there is tremendous trust that we're necessarily putting in companies. That's because regulators don't necessarily have the capacity or the expertise or the resources to fully understand all of these technologies, to keep pace with them as they're changing, um, to, to do the kind of, of pre-market approval even that I think is, is often conflated with regulation writ large. Um, and if regulators don't have that ability, then certainly an individual member of the public has no ability to fully understand these these technologies. And that necessarily entails some trust. So for, for me, the question becomes, are these companies worthy of the trust that we're necessarily placing in them? And that's where I agree. That's where governments do have the potential expertise and ability to ask the questions that go to the trustworthiness of a company. Um, one of those may be transparency. Um, is a company saying convincingly what they're doing, why they think it's reasonably safe, and why we should believe them? Do their conclusions follow from their premises? Are they missing large parts of the problem? These are the kinds of high-level process questions that governments can ask to ascertain whether a company is in a position to be acting responsibly, whether it's actually acting responsibly, and critically, whether it will continue to act responsibly when bad things happen. Uh, I look at regulation as not just a product or a moment in time, but the entire life cycle of these products through instances when they cause harm. When bad things happen, are these the kind of companies that are going to step up and are going to make things right? Alan, for a long time, you've been a, a proponent of companies sharing data when bad things happen, when bad things almost happen. Doesn't that require some kind of regulation or do you really think they're, they're, they will willingly do this? Well, I think, you know, there may be some regulation uh, required because of the possible collusion implications of such things. And so um, uh, th th those pieces, and certainly uh, Brian can speak to those much, much better than, than I can speak to those. Uh, but I, I, my argument with respect to sharing is that is that the companies should not be competing on safety. They should be cooperating on safety. And if if one of them happens to trip over something uh, and 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 realize, oh my goodness, uh, we didn't see this one coming, and of course we can fix it on our own technology stack and make it better. Uh, they should make that information available to everybody else to allow them to fix their technology stack. 
So in some sense, uh, uh, being able to address the whole IP question and so on, um, but doing it in, in an environment uh, where really um, uh, the rising water here uh, would, would lift all ships. Um, the opportunity to be able to do that and and to to share the the situations in which oh my goodness uh, we can't have that happen uh, and then be shared. What are your thoughts on that, Brian? I think the industry can do it itself. I think I think if it's given uh, you know the uh, uh, the freedom uh, and uh, with respect to um, uh, non colluding activities. Brian, I think I'm more skeptical about the the capacity of companies to 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 regulate or be checked solely by market forces. Um, I think of of two two unique circumstances. One is a small startup company that has really two options. One is they make it, or two is they go bust. Um, and in that binary how they go bust might not be particularly relevant. Whether they go bust because they've failed to get funding, they've failed to make a product, they've failed to put it on the road, or there's been a, a catastrophe that, that has um, eliminated their value um, and driven them out of the market. Um, given that binary, I could see a company like that taking risks that might not be reasonable. On the other side, we have really big established companies um, that are immune to some market pressures uh, or are, are um, in some cases seen as too big to fail. And I think Dieselgate is a really big illustration of that, um, where companies have been alleged to have engaged in intentionally fraudulent conduct. Uh, and yet um, those companies are, are still around and still selling and still acting and, and still publicly traded. Um, so I think we need something else, and that is the ability of government to to force transparency when useful um, and to um, take coercive steps when necessary. Ed, why don't you chime in here? What, what does your experience tell you? Sure. Um, I, I worked at one time in a government agency that had the power to compel companies to turn over certain kinds of information on a confidential basis. Uh, and one of the things that I found interesting when I was in that environment was how often there was a um, sort of voluntary exchange of information from companies, sort of knowing that the government agency could compel information. Companies would often come and say, hey, we're planning to launch this new, uh, this new feature, this new product, which relates to the you know, areas that you regulate. And uh, we want to explain to you what's going on and why, it's, and, and why we think it's okay. And we want to get your feedback before we launch it and see it, um, you know, and understand what objection you might have. Um, and that process can be really fruitful and it can be a way of kind of making sure that the uh, obligations that a regulatory agency has to make sure that things are okay um, can be carried out in a way that is, uh, that's lightweight and that allows a true communication between the people who want to do a thing and the people who are responsible for making sure that that thing is safe. Uh, so even if you have hard regulation, a lot of what happens actually happens via informal communication. Um, and uh, just a back and forth, people getting on the phone or getting in a room and just asking each other questions. Um, 
And that's a really important role that agencies play. And you typically will not see those things happening publicly. Um, so much of what happens in the interaction, I think, between regulatory agencies and the major players in an area uh, happens, uh, happens behind the scenes and happens informally. Um, and I think it's super important that um, government agencies are able to operate in that way because that's kind of the good path where people are behaving in, uh, in good faith and uh, the agencies can do what they, can, what they need to do with a light hand. That said, there are some bad actors or there are actors who beha can behave recklessly and cause huge harm way beyond what they could be made to pay to, to the victims of their bad behavior. And um, so at times, a regulator needs to have the power to shut something down when, uh, when someone's behaving really recklessly. But that tends to be sort of new entrants and smaller players. Less experienced companies tend to be the ones that do those things. Alan, we're going to let you get the, the last word in on, on this topic. So the bottom line, I think, is uh, if Waymo is, is poised uh, to launch uh, a driverless service commercially, uh, anything to fear? Well, from, from my perspective, um, I think they've done their homework. Uh, I, you know, I really think they've done their, their homework and... Um, they haven't tried to really game the system from what I can see. Um, they've put in the miles, they've tried the areas. And, and I think that the, given the, 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 the market opportunity and potential that, that this form of mobility has, if it is done safely, they understand that. And and they understand that constraint, and I, I'm I'd love to see them start. In the beginning, what are they going to have? You know, a couple hundred vehicles, a thousand vehicles out there. Uh, how much damage could they really do? Uh, and we're going to learn so much, uh, and and really see is this is does this really improve the the quality of life? Uh, to many individuals, um, and 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 if it does, then um, uh, then that's great. But we're not going to know that if we never get out there and do it or try it. There are some other stories we want to chat about here. Uh, Honda is investing two and three quarters billion dollars in GM's self-driving car unit, Cruise. And uh, SoftBank uh, of Japan, which has Toyota as a partner in self-driving technology, had previously put more than $2 billion into Cruise. So give us your perspective first, Alan. What, well, what's going on? Uh, you know, part of that $2 billion of that 2.75 is over 10 years. And so, um, you know, it is some amount of money that they're putting in there. Um, I don't know why GM wants Honda with them, but uh, maybe maybe Honda brings uh, brings something to the table for them. Um, and so, uh, great. But but the kinds of if we if we look at the kinds of money that the private sector is committing uh, to this technology, this is this is serious business, and I just can't imagine. Uh, that they would go in there without um, uh, without the recognition that safety is 
absolutely paramount here. And um, and that's where they're going to spend their money to make sure that they meet that that necessary condition and provide the mobility. So, um, you know, I can't see going down to uh, USDOT and say, oh, give me $2.75 billion. I want to do something. It sort of sounds like you've got GM, Honda, and in a way Toyota under, under one umbrella here. Who, are they worried about Google? Who are they? <laughs> what, what, what do you think is going on? <laughs> I mean, uh, I think they're all playing catch up. Uh, that's what I think. But, uh, you know, you just you, the experience that Waymo has gotten over the past year. Uh, by providing a basically a uh, ride hailing uh, lift uh, Uber type of service uh, in a very nice environment, a very friendly environment, uh, uh, Chandler, Arizona. Um, my goodness, um, uh, that that is just, must be just like gold to them. Uh, that is really valuable, and uh, given that. Uh, you know, except for one car that crossed the median and uh, and slammed into one of the vehicles, which, you know, uh, there's nothing that you can do about that. Um, uh, it's it has a completely clean uh, sheet of paper there, and uh, in terms of um, and clean record with respect to safety, and so um, uh, I think they're ready. Ed, uh, what went through your mind when you when you saw the story of what Honda's doing? Well, I think everyone, all the all the major car companies feel like they have to get into this space, and um, I do tend to agree with Alan that um, that uh, some of them feel like they have to play catch up, and so they they are teaming up. Um, and uh, you know, this technology is maybe harder to develop and harder to uh, sort of shepherd to to say, to a safe operation than people might've thought. And so it makes a lot of sense for these uh, entities to team up and to have, and that we're likely to end up with uh, relatively few players who, who um, or technology um, platforms that uh, are really serious in the space. Brian, do you want to comment on that or any potential legal issues with them all sort of working together? Yeah. So I think there's this perception that, that, there are different brands and that they are discreet in every way. And the reality is, has, has long been quite different. Um, there has long been lots of collaboration between and among would-be competitors, whether that's joint ventures between GM and Toyota or other companies uh, or sharing key suppliers that make many of the components or the, the decision by several German automakers a few years ago to purchase um, here from Nokia um, there, there has been and will continue to be all kinds of, of overlap uh, in the automotive industry, just as there has been and will be in the information technology industries to which Google belongs. Um, this, is, this is modern corporate capitalism. And uh, SoftBank's uh, being a player in this is interesting, too, with their 5G technology. They're, they're still, uh, and until a deal closes here with T-Mobile, they still... Uh, uh, or the major stakeholder, I believe, in Sprint. And also, Fred, you know, SoftBank is is involved with everybody except for Alphabet and Waymo, as far as I know. Interesting. In the latest smart driving car newsletter, uh, a headline from the Washington Post reads, 
Minivans are the future of transportation. Just don't call them minivans. Uh, well, we know the Chrysler Pacifica is certainly uh, selling lots of vehicles to Waymo, right? Uh, yes, and it, it seems like it's a, it's a reasonable design, or maybe the Sprint vehicles will emerge as a, as a slightly better design. But, but the opportunity to get in and out easily, and I think also the opportunity to be able to, to share rides, which in the end is really important in all this technology, uh, if it's really going to have the societal benefits uh, that uh, at least uh, I envision, uh, <clears throat> uh, the, the minivan turns out to be a pretty good vehicle. Holding, what, six, seven people at least uh, at a time? And the, and the sliding door, the sliding door is, is, is really important. Instead of having a flip-out door that, oh, my goodness, uh, you know, the room that it takes and it's going to get clipped. And um, anyway, um, but I'm sure a lot of automotive designers are going to, are going to uh, play a role here. Um, <clears throat> I just don't think it's going to be the futuristic um, uh, vehicles for the one percenters that, um, that some of the other companies like Daimler and, um, and even Volvo sort of envision, but. Sort of speaking of that, uh, the news from Tesla for a change uh, seems to be fairly positive. Uh, the settlement with the SEC, Model 3 deliveries surged last quarter, and they're focused, uh, we hear, in, in speeding up the building of a factory in China since they're being hit with uh, those 40% tariffs on imports now. Yes, maybe uh, uh, better late than never, of course. And uh, it, it, to me, it's really impressive uh, the fact that, that they have uh, been able to uh, produce over the previous quarter um, over 50,000 Model 3s. If you look at, at sales of EVs in the U.S., um, uh, the Model 3 um, over the last couple months has, has represented uh, basically half of uh, electric vehicle sales in the U.S. It's the really the only one that that, that is growing. Um, it it is um, it is carrying electric vehicle technology in the U.S. So uh, um, uh, whether or not uh, they can make it profitably, and whether or not Elon Musk can survive, we will wait and see. Uh, but um, but uh, we should uh, hats off to, to Elon and Tesla for um, eventually achieving what they said that they were going to achieve. But they still aren't making the, the kind of vehicle that you envision uh, for our automated future. Well, I mean, I, it's 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 really focused to uh, consumer-owned vehicle. It's it's not really focused as a Chrysler Pacific or as a minivan would be to a fleet operation. And of course, my view of of the of the um, driverless vehicle is that it's a fleet vehicle. It's operated by a fleet operator. It's it's serving fifty or so. Um, person trips a day it's not sitting parked in some in some parking garage waiting for my day to end or in in my uh, in my driveway for my day to begin um um, so uh um, you know that's just my view of it ed let me get you to chime in here a little bit do you have the same kind of 
passion that that Alan does about the and maybe should the government play a role in in, in steering these vehicles to providing a, a new form of mass transportation, more or less, rather than single single occupancy vehicles. Well, I think I think the market will drive uh, toward the use of these vehicles in car sharing type of business models for a lot of riders, for the riders who can afford to own their own cars now. It'll be, for many people, more economical to use cars, use uh, car sharing services based on self-driving vehicles. Um, but of course, there's another dimension to this, which is uh, the role that these vehicles can have in public transportation. That is transportation that is subsidized by government in the name of economic development in the name of helping people who are mobility challenged. Uh, and there's a big role that, um, that automated vehicles can play there by providing uh, a level of service that is much better and much more flexible and adaptable than what public transport provides now. Uh, and that's a really exciting direction. I think I share Alan's uh, excitement about that. Brian, any thoughts? It's, it's striking that the um, AV 3.0 policy that was released today uh, is really multimodal, and a, a big part of that is transit um, and conceptions other than the individually owned um, traditional passenger vehicle. So it's it's good to see that that these issues have have really reached the the national stage, um, for on both the policy side and on on the the business side. And what you're talking about is this uh, Department of Transportation just out with uh, what's titled the Automated Vehicles 3.0: Preparing for the Future of Transportation. Alan, and he, we'll get into this uh, in a, in a future episode, I think. But any preliminary thoughts, Alan? Well, my, my preliminary thoughts really uh, uh, follow up what, what Brian and Ed just said. I think, to me, the, the real short-term opportunity for these things is to put them out there uh, as, a, as a public accessible uh, transport system uh, to provide mobility, especially to the mobility disadvantaged, which I, I like to talk about. It's, 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 it's not just people with disabilities. It's people that have the economic disabilities that, that are poor, that don't have access to a car and aren't served by, by uh, conventional uh, public transit. Uh, there are enormous number of these households uh, right here in, in central Jersey, right here in Mercer County. Um, whose lives could be uh, uh, substantially improved uh, because um, uh, these vehicles can now give them access uh, to the jobs uh, for which uh, they aren't connected to. Um, as I like to say at the Robbinsville Amazon distribution facility, Amazon's not paying 15 bucks an hour. They need, they need workers. Um, uh, New Jersey Transit doesn't provide mobility there. How are these folks supposed to get to these jobs? And so this is a real opportunity, and 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 these vehicles won't discriminate. They they don't have to 
to be moving rich people around or people that, that happen to have who knows how many cars parked in their driveways already. They really can go and, and provide mobility to these people. And I think th- that makes it life-changing for them. That improve, improves their quality of life, improves New Jersey. And I want to see them come to New Jersey. So do market forces dictate the direction or does somebody in officialdom have to say, this is really what it's all about, the way Alan Kornhauser is saying that? Well, I, I think I think the public sector should be supporting and, and encouraging it and creating a welcoming environment. And, the, and because the demand varies throughout the day, these vehicles, you know, will be usable by others at other times, too. They're not just sitting around waiting. They, they're, they're available. And again, um, you know, the 50 trips a day that a person trips a day that a vehicle might serve, maybe you know, 30 of those are for mobility disadvantaged and 20 is for everybody else, you know, however, however it works out. But the opportunity to have it demand responsive, be able to basically take people from about where they live to really where they want to go at any time, 24-7. They don't care what time it is, um, you know, can, is, is really an opportunity and it's it's really now uh, the, the challenge is this to for us to develop and make sure that they're safe develop the algorithms that do that to do the matching and do that efficiently and go out there and and try to do as much ride sharing as we possibly can because then you know we're taking two or three people uh with a vehicle as opposed to the way we drive around i'm always by myself I don't know about the rest of you, but (laughs) the social case is compelling. Um, I hope the economic case is compelling, but I think it is less compelling um, than the social case. And one of the reasons for that is that there are so many uh, externalities of individual vehicle ownership and driving that are not born by individual users uh, in a way that can meaningfully affect their behavior. So the more that policy can can shift some of those external costs into the cost of driving, whether that's through the park of uh, through pricing parking or pricing congestion um, or other other methods, the more viable we can make um, these ultimately more socially efficient modes of, of sharing. Absolutely. They do those things, then people will leave their cars at home and not buy them and, and basically use this. And, and if we're all in there, the, the systems will know that, we won't, that we're going from about the same place to about the same place at about the same time. And they'll put us together and, uh, you know, we'll happily share. What do you think, Ed? Uh, absolutely. This is, it's a more efficient way to travel. It's more efficient in terms of getting people from point A to point B quickly it's a more efficient use of the vehicles. It's a more efficient use of the roads. And, you know, the technology that exists today for planning and scheduling and dispatching um, is capable of doing this. And it's just a question of how do we get that system built out at scale? Um, and it's going to take some experiments and some, um, you know, some feasibility demonstrations by building somewhere. Um, you know, I would certainly hope it happens here in New Jersey, but it could happen anywhere. Um, you know, try, try this out and see what happens. I think people are eager for better solutions. And, um, you know, we just need to see that that's possible. And then I think a lot of people will jump on this bandwagon. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, I think the people here in Central Jersey are, I think, beginning to think that maybe we could do it here, too. We have, a you know, not quite as nice of weather as Arizona, and our streets, I'm sure, aren't as wide and as smooth and so on. Uh, but, uh, but, boy, could we use it, and, and we could really improve a lot of households' fundamental uh, quality of life. We have winter, but we don't have uh, usually at least 120 degrees yeah. in summer, right? Well, we're not we're not Minneapolis <laughs> or Duluth, you know, <laughs> or Buffalo. <laughs> a couple of other quick stories from the newsletter we want to get to. Uh, some former Apple engineers unveiled this week what they say is a next-generation sensor for self-driving cars. The company is called Ava, and they say the sensor can separate objects based on distance can tell whether it's moving away from or toward it, and can measure velocity. Um, is this exciting news, Alan? Well, hey, if it's true, uh, you know, the details matter. But but if, if one's working with, uh, in addition to RGB, uh, red, blue, green at each pixel, one also has distance and one has velocity at each pixel, and one has it, uh, you know, 20 times a second at the same resolution that we now have images. Um, I don't, you know, the AI doesn't become trivial, but my goodness, it's a heck of a lot easier to figure out what's going on. And so um, the question is in the detail. And finally, LM Industries, which makes the OLLI, O-L-L-I, Low Speed Autonomous Electric Shuttle, They're asking cities for input on how these vehicles might be used. That's from Digital Trends. And, Alan, this this is a company you're pretty familiar with. Yes, because uh, the CEO is Jay Rogers, class of 94. And, Jay, uh, there's not only cities that are interested in this. There's uh, right here in River City. Uh, Hopefully, uh, Princeton, Princeton University, Mercer County would be very interested in discussing with you. Uh, the opportunities here. Yeah, they've talked, I think, about the, the idea of bringing it to the, to the airport here, there, right? Absolutely. It could, be, it could be great at Mercer County Airport. It would be uh, great here on campus, I believe, or at least to try. It would be great to try in Princeton. Um, why not? Well, we'll see what's next. <laughs> there are a lot of reasons why not, I'm sure. But why not? <laughs> well, that's it for this edition. We want to thank uh, Ed Felton and Bryant Walker-Smith for joining us. Uh, really a terrific dis- discussion, guys. We appreciate it. You can find us online at smartdrivingcar.com. You can listen to us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, even on your Amazon Alexa. Find my tech reports at textination.com. I'm Fred Fishkin with Alan Kornhauser. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you.